Welcome to this edition of It's All Political. I'm John Diaz, the Chronicle's editorial page editor, pinch hitting for everyone's favorite host, Joe Garofoli. Today's guests are from the Lincoln Project. You may have seen their campaign ads, which are all over social media. Of course, there's nothing unusual about political ads in this election season. So why is the Lincoln Project making so much noise in 2020? Well, for one thing, their ads come out faster and come out harder than anyone else's against President Trump. But here's the real attention grabber. The leaders of the group are not Democrats. They are not even liberal. They are prominent Republican strategists who have spent their careers working against Democrats at the highest levels. They believe, quite simply, that President Donald Trump is a danger to our democracy. They are endorsing Joe Biden in 2020. I had a chance to chat with two of the Lincoln Project leaders, Steve Schmidt, whose deep portfolio includes managing John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, and Mike Madrid, who used to be the political director for the California Republican Party. They have some interesting insights about the 2020 race and beyond on this edition of It's All Political. And I want to welcome you, Michael Madrid and Steve Schmidt, uh, to this edition of It's All Political. Um, Let me ask you, uh, first of all, each of you have uh, extensive experience in California politics. You've seen what the Republican Party uh, has become in in this state. are there, do you see parallels with what's happening nationally from the Trump, Donald Trump administration to what it means for the party nationally? Absolutely, 100%. Um, it's clear as day. And it's happening at a faster pace with the, with the national party. I mean, the, the, the fall of the California Republican Party um, was is an epic story of political collapse. And this was the state that was the anchor of the National Republican Party. This was the state that produced Republican presidents like Nixon and, and Reagan. And it's not just that the party's in a minority status in California, but it's in a third party status in the state. And more than that, it, it exercises no political power in the state. Um, It can't influence policy at a legislative level. It can't influence policy at a regulatory level. Uh, It has no capacity to win statewide races. And it's a, in essence, um, a cabal of nuts at the state party level that hunt heretics is a hobby, you know, for deviance from orthodoxy around in its latest iteration is the devotion to a cult of personality, which is, which is Trump. But, but, it, but it stands for, for nothing and the brand in the state is irretrievably broken. And so if you, if you look at Trumpism and you accept that the Republican Party is shrinking, which it is, right? It's getting smaller. It's smaller than it was four years ago. And you could have looked at, and we did, that trajectory of decline in California. You could almost pinpoint the date where it would slip below decline to state registration, you know, to become the, to become the third party in the state. You know, the same thing is happening, happening with the Republican Party. But, but the most important thing, and I think the most 
misunderstood thing about about political parties is it's covered from Washington. I mean, California isn't isn't on Mars and it's on the West Coast of the United States. Right. And so you can study the California Republican Party to understand this central truth about political parties that are collapsing. This isn't a consumer product. This isn't a Coca-Cola product where the company says, God, the consumers didn't like it, despite what all the testing said, we're going to pull it off the shelf and we're going to reintroduce something new. Political parties are much closer to supernovas. And as a star collapses, what happens is the star shrinks, but as it shrinks, its density increases and its heat increases. Then what you saw at the same time in California as the parties collapsing and shrinking, it got more extreme and it got crazier. And the central requirement now to win a primary, you know, for much of the country, and it's been a long time, the truth in California is the craziest person will win. And so you, 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 you've seen this collapse utterly and completely of any attachment of the Republican Party in the state of California to any concept of competent, decent governance. And that's certainly a huge part of what Trumpism is, a collapse of any interest in, in governance, along with all the attendant extremism and indecency. Michael, your thoughts, uh, you certainly uh, have, have been up close and personal in working with Republicans in California. So let me let me put it this way. Uh, in many ways, 2020 in this presidential race reminds me of when Steve and I first worked together in 1998. We were coming off of, you know, two or three years prior to that was basically Prop 187, a different change in tone in the Republican Party. And that toxic brand was pulling down even good candidates like Matt Fong, which the San Francisco Chronicle Probably last time you guys endorsed a Republican. We endorsed and, Schwarzenegger and been, too, Michael. Well, and, that, and I was going to mention Schwarzenegger too, because there were anomalous, uh, from a data perspective, Republicans who would come up. And Steve, of course, was, was very intimately involved with the Schwarzenegger uh, administration. That's the model that works demonstrably for Republicans, quantifiably. It just does. But what you have is a party, as Steve pointed out, that becomes more monolithic. And, and starts to develop more of a martyr complex and it's, it's losing. Its identity as a loser starts to become, make it feel more righteous. And that's, that begins the seeds of extremism so that now we're talking about these very ridiculous things, which were, you know, there's a record number of QAnon candidates in California that are running. There's a record number of candidates that have been disavowed by the party because of racist comments and behaviors. A chairman of parties with you know, Nazi videos from, from their pasts. This is all emblematic of a party that is in deep, deep decline. And the only real action that the Republican Party of California has taken has been through these kind of junk lawsuits to try to prevent universal voting, to prevent people from voting and putting up fake boxes to allow people in violation of the law to allow, to, 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 try, to, to try to fool people into, into voting through its own manners and mechanisms. It's not even trying to compete in the, in the battlefield of ideas anymore. This is not a party that has an ideological underpinning. 
it's become just a sideshow. It's marginalized. It's regionalized. There are, I think, seven members of Congress from a 56 member delegation. I mean, this is not a party that's truly a party anymore. It's a very small regional a variant. And um, it's the, the, I think the most heartbreaking part of it is somebody who's spent his entire life and career working in the party is that it's not trying to become relevant anymore. It's, it's given up on that. It's not trying to say we have better ideas or we have solutions. It's devolved into a, a fringe movement, a fringe political organization that um, has its own identity uh, based on the fact that it is not heard. And so it's not trying to be heard. One of the criticisms I hear of the Lincoln Project from Republicans who otherwise agree with you uh, in your critique of President Trump is why do you have to go after all the Republican senators? Why, why not? Uh, does it really advantage the party if they, if the Republicans lose the Senate, possibly lose more uh, House seats? Uh, you know, they, they would they would much prefer that this be limited to the President. We are living in an hour of profound tragedy in this country that did not that did not have to be. What, what Donald Trump did in the early months of 2020 was tell the country the most lethal lie in its history. If we had the same mortality rates as the Germans did, there would be at least 160,000 more Americans alive today. And it's likely by the time we get to the end of this tragedy, we'll see 350 to 400,000 Americans dead on the, on the low end. We, we have a shattered economy. Uh, we have more people that are unemployed today uh, than on any other October day bearing this date in American history. Um, we have the education of every kid in this country profoundly disrupted. And every parent in this country under strain trying to cope with trying to educate children that they have no core training or qualifications to, to do. Um, we have seen a level of corruption, lawlessness, indecency, malice, this travesty on the border where there are hundreds and hundreds of children where the parents have been lost in the system, the children are abandoned, that this indecency, his stoking of violence, of a cold civil war, none of this, none of this could have happened without the silence, the complicity, and the cowardice of the United States Senate Republicans and House members who knew, because we can go back and look about what they said, who this guy was from hour one. He has let loose the forces of extremism in the country. He has made an unpardonable offense against the American Republic with his ruminations about whether there'll be a peaceful transition of power or not, dependent on his victory. He has given, in essence, according to them, the Boogaloo Boys and the Proud Boys, what they heard was a lock and load order. 
We have kidnapped plots against governors and states by militia groups, and the president of the United States is encouraging it. We saw a 17-year-old young man in Illinois get driven to Wisconsin with his AR-15, and this young man who was radicalized in the front row of a Trump rally watching the extreme propaganda watching at the Republican convention, the McCloskeys, who were only there for one reason, because they pointed weapons at peacefully marching black protesters. All, every debasement could have been opposed. It was not. There is no place for accommodation with the Alex Joneses and the Steve Bannons and the white nationalists and the white supremacists and the militia groups, this toxic, noxious, illiberal, autocratic moment has to be repudiated and put in the ground. And that means burning it to the ground. It is corrupted. It is indecent. And if there is ever to be a restoration of a decent conservatism, which is antithetical to the blood and soil nationalism and the dishonest demagogic populism of Trump, then this movement must be destroyed. And that is what our strategic objective is. Michael, let me uh, point to you, uh, Steve, was just talking about the restoration of decent conservatism. Each of you have, have worked uh, for a lot of, I would say, decent conservative Republican candidates. Uh, what happens if Joe Biden wins this election? I mean, on November 4th, uh, do you see your role changing in some way, of becoming the loyal opposition? Uh, do you see yourself uh, uh, su uh, supporting the president and what he's trying to do? Because certainly... I would imagine, uh, you know, if you go issue by issue, that the two of you are not on board with everything in the uh, Biden platform. I think that if you sat down and went item by item, Steve and I would probably be opposed to the vast majority of what the policy platform might be of, of a Joe Biden presidency and a Democratic majority in both houses. But what I think we would be, agree we would be in agreement on is the fact that we need to concentrate and focus on the restoration of this, of the foundations of the American experiment. That we need to not only bring back a decency uh, and, 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 a, and a heightened awareness and morality to the office of the presidency and the executive office, but we also have to rebuild a modernized version of the protections to prevent this type of activity or person from ever engaging in these types of things. Again, when you look at things like the emoluments clause, these are 245 year old concepts that need to be strengthened and beefed up. When we talk about the abuses that we've seen with pardons that have gone on and are likely to continue, even if in the likelihood that he is defeated, what the next, the three month interregnum, the damage that could be done in that process, the nepotism laws that would prevent a, a gangster style family from utilizing our country as a profiteering mechanism for their family business. 
all of these concepts need updating and revision. I think for the moment, while, while we as founders have not sat down to talk specifically about what the next step is, because we're singularly focused on, on getting rid of this threat, we are all committed to the very basic premise and idea that our democracy is not healthy now as it stands. We're not worried about the, 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 the danger to democracy if Trump is reelected, although that is the case. We're worried about its status now, uh, that, that this was allowed to happen. And, and Steve was right about the cowardice and the complicitness of the party leaders. And, and he's right on why it needs to be taken down to the studs, perhaps lower, if there's ever going to be a conservative movement again. This party has become morally bankrupt and complicit. And the danger is it's probably a sign of a broader societal rot that needs to be gutted out. And I think that that's the type of work I think that we will be engaged in. Um, you know, if Donald Trump is reelected, we won't be going anywhere. Our work will just be continuing on that front. I think that we also have, I think, an obligation, a personal and professional obligation, because we're so well positioned to continue this fight with some of those enablers who allowed this destruction and trampling of our constitution and debasement of our republic to happen, to remove those people as, as being unworthy and unfit for holding public office. But beyond that, it's widely apparent to us that there are significant structural and systemic problems um, that the founders could not have seen 250 years ago. And I think that we have, a, we have an obligation to work on those issues. I, I don't see us engaging in significant fights with the Biden administration on tax policy or you know, transportation bills. I don't see that that's what we're going to be involved in. I think I think there's far more fundamental issues that have been exposed where I think we have a voice, where we've demonstrated some credibility and I think um, have the particular expertise and set of skills to move forward to protect our, our founding documents and our constitution and, our, and, our, and the American norms of governance for the next generation of Americans and hopefully longer. Let me throw this out for uh, either of you. Uh, do you think if, if Joe Biden is elected president that he owes Republicans something? There's been some talk that he is looking at, for example, putting some Republicans in his cabinet. Um, given The Lincoln Project is certainly the most prominent of the uh, uh, never Trumpers from, from Republicans, but there are others as well. That, uh, that and, and it seems to me that uh, to a great extent, uh, he's developed a bit of a, of a bipartisan coalition um, does he owe or on on November fourth? Are you going to uh, and other Republicans going to be saying, "Look, we helped get you elected. Uh, you need to make sure that you move toward the center." I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an answer to this question roundabout, but I, I think it's a I think it's a deeper deeper question. The the country needs to enter a season of reconciliation where. We understand that we have more in common than indifference and that house divided will not stand as Abraham Lincoln pointed out and that the divisions that have been sown right by Trump right in this country and exacerbated by Trumpism and the propaganda networks that that sustain it in defeat right, that, that, that party, that vestigial element will get more extreme, 
and more people that once had fidelity to it will dissociate from it. Now, one of the great tragedies of this era is that Trump has never tried to be the president of all the people, which means, right, that he's a factional leader by definition. Look, I, I ran a campaign against Barack Obama. He was, my, he was my opponent. I never voted for him, but he was always my president, right? It's, it's not that Joe Biden owes, right, a faction or a collection of interests anything more. The only oath that the president takes is the 35-word oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And we have seen a season of profound incompetence in this country. We have a quack radiologist who Trump saw on Fox News who has a stranglehold on the pandemic response of the government whose lethal lying and incompetence has killed hundreds of thousands of people who should be alive. I don't give a fuck if he's a left-handed vegetarian socialist. If the person in that capacity in that job is competent to the task. And so what you what you hope, right, is that is that Joe Biden understands the urgency of re restoring to health the intelligence agencies which have been gutted, the Justice Department, which has been abused and politicized, the State Department that's been that's been hollowed out and that he will draw on expertise that believes in America's ideas and ideals, right? And that in the end of the day, we're a gigantic country geographically and numerically. And that I would hope that Joe Biden and a democratic majority, which is what we're fighting for, will not rule as majoritarians and further exacerbate the divisions in the country, because what wisdom requires, and somebody has to do it first, is restraint. This is what's wrong with the Barrett nomination, right? It's written about in Federalist 10 by Madison, who talks about an overbearing majority imposing their will on a minority unfairly. What, what, what fuels a democratic republic, the oldest in the world, right? That is, is, is the fuel is trust, faith, and belief in the legitimacy of the system. And we've seen the consequences of the collapse of trust in institutions and how it inexorably leads to the rise of a Trump. But now, the warning signs for the system itself are flashing red. And that should be the focus of the Biden administration. The reality is recovery from COVID will be a years long project, recovering the economy. I think that everybody should be freaked out by the fact that we have a $3 trillion deficit this year. And we're, we're moving at warp speed to $30 trillion in debt. It's generational theft and it's immoral. And of course, revenues will have to be increased. But 
across the depth and breadth of the government. You look at the voting lines. We clearly need a new civil rights act in this country, a voting rights act in this country. Acts for dealing with hostile powers interfering in the election. We need fundamental ethics reform. Um, all of these things, right? And, 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 and I hope Biden will pursue that path vigorously, you know, and as a, and as a group, do everything we, we, you know, we can to help support an agenda like that. And, and I think he understands and he has been explicit about that he's going to be president for the people who didn't vote for him either. And I think he understands why people are so disconnected from all of this that they would vote like for someone like Trump in the first place. Michael, your thoughts. Uh, do you think uh, a President Biden would owe something to Republicans who have certainly been part of the coalition, uh, at least at this point? No, I don't think that there is any debts to be collected. But I think, as Steve said, I think that he is keenly aware that in order to heal this country, much like Lincoln's team of rivals, and I don't mean a team in the cabinet sense, although that's possible, there's a need to reach across the aisle in a way that we have not seen, not just during the Trump era, but, but in a much more substantive, meaningful way than perhaps you know, any president in the last 30 years. And I'm not speaking about a specific president. I'm talking about a, an era of divisiveness where Americans have found themselves in red camps or blue camps and oftentimes seeing each other as a greater threat than even foreign threats. That time has to end. The, 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 the goal and my belief with, with, with the Biden administration, if he's elected, is that they are that he is aware of that, that we need to have a time of healing and recognition that America, the American experiment is is the undercarriage is is wobbling and we can't continue in this way. We have to at least agree on the fundamentals of who we are as a people and our systems of governance. So the short answer is no, I don't view this at all as a debt collection. I expect no repayments from any political structure, political system. I think I, like the other founders, view this as our commitment to this country and its ideals. That's reward enough. And, and whether, whether I work in politics again after November 4th is of no consequence to me because there's a far greater concern and my guess is that's the same way the other founders and many, many people in this movement feel. I want to respect your schedules, but I can't let you get away with, uh, without asking you about your, uh, the, the ads, so many of which have gone viral. Uh, in my view, they've been distinguished not only by their excellence, but by the, the volume, but also the timing. Uh, as I was telling Michael before we uh, started the podcast, uh, it's almost like something happens, Trump does something, and I'm doing the countdown Three, two, one, Lincoln Project. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you, uh, certainly some of your um, uh, ads have been really aimed at an audience of one, the President of the United States, a little psychological warfare going on uh, there. But beyond that, wh what do you see as your target audience? Is it uh, persuadable Republicans? Is it motivating um, Democrats? Uh, when you put together those ads, uh, wh what's your audience? Well, let me let me say this in many ways, and I, I, I mean this from a from a technical and from a professional perspective. 
what the Lincoln Project has done over the course of the past year has really, in many ways, redefined the way the modern campaign is run because of, of two different strategic considerations that we take into place. Most of the ads and the narrative that you see are a function of some of the best people in the business. It's Steve and Rick and Reed, Galen and others who are really continually driving the national narrative that has incredible value tactically and strategically from a campaign perspective. When we look back at the changes that happened from, from Trump's campaign, from, from personnel issues that were made, from the president's actions himself and giving speeches to his direct response to us, the value of that alone is, is you, you can't put a real value on that from a campaign perspective. But I do want to make it clear that that's not all we're doing. While it has become kind of a, of, a, of a national sensation, if you will, because of the quality and quantity of these ads, we have run hundreds of ads that the average person in America has not seen. And those ads are directly focused at, at moving small slices of the Republican electorate in key states, in key counties, um, because the ultimate goal here is not just a moral victory, it's, it's victory. Well, the, the goal here is to win the race and, and to, to defeat Trumpism. And the way we do that is by doing a lot of these very targeted techniques that are moving key constituencies in the Republican coalition. So you're right, John, when we run an ad that is focused on an audience of one, there's a very good tactical reason for that, and it's been highly effective. That doesn't mean that we're trying to move Republicans in North Carolina or Georgia or Florida with that ad. We're running a whole bevy of other ads to do specifically that to those audiences. And so you may not see a lot of this activity because that's not designed to do that. But what we've been able to do is run a multi-track operation, which is unique for a political action committee. No one's ever done either one of these before, let alone both at the same time. And so it's very important to understand um, that we are doing both at, at the same time. There's a lot of attention that is garnered, rightfully so, by some of these ads that drive the national narrative and respond directly to the president in real time. And most importantly, force him and his campaign to respond to us. Again, tremendous, tremendous tactical and strategic value to that. But that's not even, I would say, most of what we do. We have an entire political operations and communications team that is focused on moving the segments of the electorate to get us to where we need to be in a position to win in as many states in the Electoral College as possible to vanquish Trump and Trumpism, not just from the party, but from, from the American political system. One final quick question for each of you. If you have a favorite ad of all those that you've done, first of all, I'll tell you my two favorites. One, uh, Morning in America early on, sort of a, a takeoff on the compare and contrast with the Ronald Reagan's famous uh, Morning in America. But even more recently, I think my, my absolute favorite is The Girl in the Mirror. As a father of a daughter, that really uh, hit me. Uh, Mike and Steve, uh, do you have a favorite? among uh, the ads you put out? I'll give you, I'll give you three because I, so it's, I love the girls ad. There's an ad about to come out called boys. Um, that's as good as the girls ad. Um, and the, um, and I love the Covita ad. Um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, laughing at this guy is an, is an important weapon in the, in the arsenal. And, uh, 
you know, we're delighted when we can make people laugh at the buffoon behind the Resolute app. <laughs> How about you, Mike? My favorite ad is the flag of treason ad, which I think really uh, embedded and locked down Donald Trump as being on the losing side of the culture wars that he was trying to um, exacerbate in this country. Um, it's, it's my favorite ad for a couple of reasons. The first is because for the first time, I think we saw a Republican president recognize and have to own the fact that this type of politicking was a loser, not just nationally, but within its own party. And the second is, I, I think it was so effective in driving the national narrative in a way that only the Lincoln Project has been able to do this year, that you started to see social change with a lot of our own institutions. And while it may not have been the sole cause of the change with the United States Marine Corps and the United States Navy taking down the battle flag of the Confederacy, it certainly played a significant role in that discussion. And you saw NASCAR and Walmart and others follow suit. And so I think it showed the power of, of the, the, the bullhorn that we have to not just uh, force this president to paint himself into a corner um, and, and, and drive this type of sentiment into the shadows where it belonged, but really to catalyze a larger social discussion about um, what types of Republicans are there and, and why we can be better than that. Mike Madrid, Steve Schmidt, thank you so much for taking the time with me. Uh, really good conversation. And I know a lot of people are looking forward to this election being over, but I suspect there are some people who are going to miss those Lincoln Project ads. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, John. That wraps up our discussion with Steve Schmidt and Mike Madrid of the Lincoln Project. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Joe Garofoli for allowing me to serve as guest host of It's All Political. I also want to thank Karen Creighton, producer of this podcast. And to our, all of our listeners, stay safe and stay healthy. And if you haven't already, remember to vote. I'm John Diaz, the Chronicle's editorial page editor.